0: Listener Supported, WNYC Studios. Listener Supported, WNYC Studios.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall F50. I'm Kathy Tu, co-host of Nancy. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org slash stonewall50.
2: And if you love these episodes as much as we do, we encourage you to subscribe to all of these great podcasts and share your favorites with your friends.
1: Okay, Tobin, what's up next?
2: Up next, an episode of the New Yorker Radio Hour. From One World Trade Center in Manhattan, this is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of the New Yorker and WNYC Studios. Alrighty, so how many of you know what a drag queen is? Oh, good. I see some hands. Any guesses for those of you who don't? What is is a drag queen?
3: It's when people
4: dress up.
2: Exactly. What is your name? Rufus. Rufus. Everybody say, hi, Rufus. Hi, Rufus. So Rufus is exactly right. It's like dress up. Who likes to play dress up here?
4: It's lunchtime on a Saturday, and we're at the Brooklyn Public Library. There's maybe 60 kids here with their parents, and they're here for an event that's called the Drag Queen Story Hour which is exactly what it sounds like.
2: Uh, my name is Chalula Lemon. I'm a New York City drag queen. I'm wearing a blush rose-colored lace dress with a tie. And I have my signature stacks of bangles and my big earrings and my big hair. <laughs> so we're going to do one more book. This one's... This one's a really good book. It's called It's Okay to Be Different. It's okay to be missing a tooth. Right? Or two. Or three. How many of you are missing teeth? I have. I lost two.
5: Would you believe that
2: two. all of these are fake? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to have a different nose. What do we see uh, here? You know, a lot of our naysayers think that we're indoctrinating kids with LGBTQ views, but that's not it at all. We're just celebrating life and celebrating that nowhere does it state that you can't play with all the colors in the crayon box. The mouth on the drag queen goes blah 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 the
4: mouth on the drag What a distance we've come. Fifty years ago this month, a man was arrested for dressing in drag during a police raid on the Stonewall Inn. A bar in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. He and some other gay and lesbian customers resisted arrests, which led to a scuffle, which grew into a riot, which led to demonstrations that lasted for days. The event that we now just call Stonewall marked the beginning of the movement for LGBTQ rights. Today on the New Yorker Radio Hour, we're talking about Stonewall and the 50 years since, about the huge advances in rights for LGBTQ people, and also the backlash around the world. But I'm not going to do this on my own, not by any means. The great journalist and activist Masha Gessen, friend and colleague, is here with me. Masha, how are you doing? I do. Now, how are you feeling about this anniversary moment? I don't always love anniversary journalism, but this 50th anniversary seems particularly meaningful and charged?
6: I have mixed feelings about this anniversary moment. It's, uh, I mean, it's a great celebration. The change that people are celebrating is truly extraordinary. The backlash is also extraordinary. Mm. And I probably wouldn't be me if I didn't feel ambivalent. Um, <laughs> In some way. But, you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion uh, among LGBT scholars and writers and, and activists about the direction of the movement, especially in the last few years, sort of as things seem to have come such a long way, but also have gone in a different direction than a lot of people expected. So I wanted to talk to my favorite ambivalent historian of the gay and lesbian movement, Martin Duberman, who is somebody who has been around for all of it. He is in his late 80s now. And Martin, as it turned out during our conversation, used to go to the Stonewall Inn.
5: Because it was the only bar where gay men could dance. (laughs) If you can believe that, Uh, run by the mafia, everyone who was a patron there knew that if the lights went on surrounding the small dance area, you instantly stopped what you were doing. Because the 6th Precinct would come storming through, throwing people against the wall, asking for ID, there was then a law in New York State, I believe, uh, you had to be wearing three pieces of clothing appropriate to your gender. Can you imagine trying to define that today? <laughs>
6: and all of this is happening in the context of great social foment, right?
5: Oh, absolutely. Black is beautiful, more or less began the across-the-board rebellions that we we saw throughout the decade, the feminist movement, Martin Luther King was assassinated. I mean, it, it was a time of uh, enormous uh, confrontation with authority.
4: Right. That really was a time of social change happening on so many levels.
6: It was. And I think we have to Think of the gay and lesbian movement, certainly in that context, which I think is sometimes, sometimes we forget. And also remember within living memory, within your lifetime and mine, it was basically illegal to be gay. Martin told me about how the police used to entrap gay men on Fire Island, a popular gay holiday spot near here.
5: In the old days when we went out there, and this goes back to the late 50s, early 60s, we used to be very careful because the cruising areas were the, the boardwalks and what the police would do across the way in Sayville, Long Island, was they, they would send over the young, hot plainclothesman and they would do the approaching on the boardwalk uh, to a gay guy who was out cruising. And given how gorgeous the plainclothesman was, the gay guy would respond And the next thing he knew, he'd be handcuffed, and he'd be taken down to the dock, and they would literally handcuff people to the flagpole, go back on the boardwalk, do the same routine five or six more times, go back over to Sayville, and they would have a kangaroo court. Not only were you arrested, but your name was printed in your local newspaper, And very often in those years, you lost your apartment almost automatically. You lost your job. The very most basic civil rights were not available.
6: Stonewall was the beginning of what we think of as the gay and lesbian movement. A mythologized beginning, obviously, not actually an accurate beginning. But that movement is still going on. Some of those rights we still don't have.
4: And what were the initial aims of the movement? Decriminalizing gay sex
6: stopping the harassment by police, also getting homosexuality off the list of psychiatric disorders, and ending discrimination against queer people in
4: housing, employment, etc. Now, broadly speaking, how much of that progress has come from elected officials finally doing the right thing, and how much of it came through fights in the court?
6: That's a great question. So, um, the marriage fight, which is something that actually began in this millennium, has largely proceeded through the courts. Discrimination protections are mostly legislative, and we've actually made a lot less progress on anti discrimination protections than on marriage. For example? For example, in half the states in this country, it is still legal to fire somebody for being gay. Um, it is legal to deny people public accommodations. So you get cases like the the famous Colorado wedding cake uh, case where you can get married in Colorado, but you can also be denied a wedding cake.
4: Now, let's talk about the impact of the AIDS crisis. I remember when ACT UP closed the FDA for a day demanding earlier access to, to drugs. How much did the AIDS crisis actually affect the movement?
6: I would say the AIDS crisis transformed the movement and and the community. It's very hard to describe to people who are either not queer or younger than I am what it's like to have lived through a period when, you know, everyone I knew died. all All the men I knew died. But it also transformed the movement by making LGBT people perversely much more visible. It also brought gay and lesbian movements together. I also think it had a profound impact on the healthcare system in this country. I mean, it's it's a huge social phenomenon, both the AIDS crisis and the AIDS activist movement that I think we still haven't quite processed.
4: Masha, my sense that while gay marriage, certainly in the queer community, had vast support, it was not a matter of unanimity. There were some second thoughts, even to the very end, about whether marriage should be as, at least as prominent a goal as it was and is?
6: You know, many of us joined a sexual liberation movement. Yeah. Uh, it, we actually envision changing the way that the society thinks about family and kinship and love. The marriage fight is in a way the opposite of that.
4: It is conservative in some sense.
6: It is, it is deeply conservative in a sense. It is, it, it is sort of buying the, the entire marriage paradigm and then asking to be included in it. And that's, that's one of the reasons I actually wanted to talk to Martin Duberman because of his book, Has the Gay Movement Failed?, in which he is pretty critical of what he sees as the movement's drift toward the political center.
5: The whole thrust of the gay movement in the last 20 years at least uh, has been – not only gay marriage but allowing gays to serve openly in the military, being allowed to kill and being allowed to settle down into, you know, a monogamous suburban life, which really doesn't suit our needs or our values or our heritage. I mean, this is not who we are or at least who we have been. No, we don't want that if we're going to form... You know, relationships of of long duration, let's tailor them to what we've learned over many years of being outsiders. We've learned a lot about monogamy, gender fluidity.
4: So Martin Duberman wants things to be a lot more radical. What does radical mean in this sense?
6: Radical means actually, I I would say, more intersectional. More concerned with que- with other questions of
4: equality, so economic justice, racism, ableism, sexism. Is it succeeding? Is it, or, or is that kind of, or is he a f- fringe voice in the overall community? He's not a fringe voice, um, but
6: there is a kind of vice situation, uh, in, and this has been the case throughout the, the gay and lesbian movement, which is that the left has not particularly
4: welcomed the queers. How does that show itself? Because you saw in Black Lives Matter, you did see a lot of intersectional rhetoric, at least, from the leadership of Black Lives Matter.
6: Absolutely. But that's that's a fairly recent development. And it has a lot to do with the Black Lives Matter movement being founded, basically, by mm-hmm. a bunch of queer people, uh,
4: queer people of color. That's the sort of thing that Duberman is talking about and I think dreams of. So we're also at a time where we're seeing a mounting legal challenge to some of the movement's gains. There's a case before the Supreme Court where the court will decide if laws against gender discrimination include, or not, sexual orientation or gender identity. Well, we've seen a lot, actually. We've seen the Trump administration
6: uh, lift most of the protections that could be lifted um, by executive action. Um, And this is especially affected transgender people. In the military, but for example. The transgender ban-, ban in the military affects the greatest number of people. The military is the largest employer of transgender people in this country. It, um, the case that we're, uh, that is in the Supreme Court now, a lot of LGBT lawyers are sort of waiting with dread to see what happens because there's very little reason to think it could co- work out well. There are several employment discrimination cases that are sewn up together in this one. Uh, in this one case that's coming before the court, the well-founded fear is that it will essentially legalize or sanctify anti-gay discrimination um, for the foreseeable future.
4: Right now, you have Pete Buttigieg running for the presidency, and certainly makes no secret of his his personal life, his sexual life. Um, does that have any? Effect on anything?
6: Um, there was a great article now. I'm trying to remember where about Pete Buttigieg being the heterosexual candidate without the wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's a there's a kind of perfect American narrative. You know, the veteran, the uh, the, the, the happily married, the religious, the, the religious. Um, For queers like me, it's a little cringeworthy. I think that for a lot of people, it's deeply meaningful, and I don't want to discount it. Um, I think for a lot of young people in this country, to see somebody like Buttigieg, unapologetic, articulate, beautiful, with his wonderful husband, being taken seriously, being so visible, it has to be hugely meaningful for a lot of people.
4: I'm here with staff writer Masha Gessen, and I'm David Remnick. We're talking about 50 years of gay rights since the Stonewall uprising, right up to the present. Now, that's a lot of history, so here's what we could call the Cliff Notes version. 50 years in five minutes from actor and comedian Leah Delaria.
3: Why, yes, it's me, Leah Delaria. Cue the disco music! Not because disco music is gay music, but because it's awesome! And it's a little gay. 1970, the first gay pride parade is held in New York, and the first gay rights march is held in the UK. Did you know, being a lesbian in the UK was never illegal? That is because Queen Victoria very famously said, there are no lesbians in the UK. Right. Me thinks doth protest too much, Your Highness. 1971, homosexuality is decriminalized in Austria, Costa Rica, and Finland. 1972, decriminalization in Norway and decriminalization in Hawaii. Look, I can't keep saying decriminalization. So every time a bell rings, a bunch of people get more rights. Let's try it out. Malta. It works. 1974, Angela Morley becomes the first trans person nominated for an Academy Award. Also, Robert Grant founds American Christian cause to oppose the gay agenda. Did we ever get around to voting on the gay agenda, kids? We're going to have one bad hair day off a year and a 12-minute dance version of the Star-Spangled Banner. 1977. More dings. Croatia. Slovenia. Montenegro. I'm so glad I know how to pronounce Montenegro. I didn't see it coming. (laughs) Harvey Milk is elected to the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. In Sweden, where homosexuality is classified as a disease, a whole bunch of people call in gay to work. Again? What? Oh, yeah. Somewhere in here is the founding of the moral majority.
5: And that means we don't have to promote homosexuality as an acceptable alternate lifestyle. It is not that. It's moral perversion. And our young All right, bring the music back.
3: 1981, the European Court of Human Rights tells Northern Ireland to decriminalize. And Colombia. And oh man, cut the music. On June 5th, doctors record the first documented cases of HIV-AIDS. In the U.S., 234 people die from AIDS-related illnesses in 1981. Globally, HIV-AIDS has killed 35 million people. All right, let's bring the music back. All right. Now I get it. That's a big one. Okay. Um, We need some wins here. Let's see. Okay, look. The 80s weren't great. But there were wins, people. In Israel. Liechtenstein. Denmark starts legally recognizing gay relationships on our way to gay marriage. Okay, here we go. Bring it back. Bring it back. Bill Clinton gets elected president. Remember Democratic President Bill Clinton? The one who signed Don't Ask, Don't Tell into Law? The one who signed the Defense of Marriage Act? No, we're not cutting the music for Bill Clinton. We're celebrating Romania instead. And the arrival of antiretroviral drugs. And Melissa Etheridge coming out. And Ellen coming out. Oh, also a few years earlier, Leah DeLaria became the first openly gay comic to perform on American television. And it's great to be here because it's the 1990s and it's hip to be queer and I'm a big dyke. Yes, you could see queer people on magazines and on TV. Mostly white, cisgender, middle-class queer people, but still. In 2000, the Netherlands straight up legalizes same-sex marriage. Over the next 10 years, gay marriage becomes legal in Belgium, Spain, Canada, South Africa, Mexico, and finally.
4: This morning, the Supreme Court recognized that the Constitution guarantees marriage equality.
3: In 2016, Obama establishes the Stonewall National Monument, America's first official LGBTQ historic site. And a few months later, 49 people are killed in a gay club. We stand with the people of Orlando who have
5: endured a terrible attack on their city.
3: And then we had a presidential election.
5: Votes. Oh, But the uh, transgender, the military is working on it now. They're doing the work. Uh, It's been a very difficult situation.
3: And here we are, 2019, 50 years after Stonewall. We've come a long way, I guess. And I have to ask, what are y'all doing for Pride this year?
4: Comedian, singer, and actress Leah Delaria of Orange is the New Black and many other shows. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Back in a minute.
3: I'm going to be dancing topless on the Stonewall Pride Float, drinking a whole lot of beer. I am what I am. I am my own
5: While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your
3: podcast. Special creations. Somewhere.
4: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick, here with Masha Gessen. We're talking about the Stonewall uprising 50 years ago and the sweeping changes in how LGBTQ people live around the world. Take Ireland, for example. Once a very conservative place. Ireland now has a gay prime minister. Irish voters recently approved gay marriage in a referendum, the first country to do so. Masha, you've reported on these issues, and you were in Ireland recently.
6: I was. I was but not to meet with Irish people. I went to talk to a refugee from a country that is not so hospitable to LGBT people. His name is Evgeny Storn.
0: Gray and windy and rainy sometimes.
6: I was walking with Evgeny Storn in Galway, which is a coastal city in Ireland. Um, this is early May, and um, I had first heard of Yevgeny a couple of years ago when some friends let me know that he was looking for help trying to get out of Russia. Something horrible was happening to him. I got some more details later. zhenya um, can you start by talking about how you ended up in Ireland? I think the story starts in St. Petersburg.
0: No, the story starts in the Soviet Union in 1983, when I was born, in Kazakh-Soviet Socialist Republic.
6: Yevgeny was born in Kazakhstan, when it was still part of the Soviet Union. When he was a teenager, there was a recruiting push for young Russian speakers from Kazakhstan to go study in Russia, and he did. And that's also when he came out.
0: I, I was practicing same sex in school with boys, but... I wasn't gay man at that moment. So it just, when I moved to St. Petersburg, when I first went to 69, nightclub, and another one which I liked more was Greshniki, uh, Sinners. <laughs> uh, so yeah, when I, uh, that was a very moment when I just realized that this is my culture, this is my music, this is my style, this is where I feel comfortable, and I really feel part of it.
6: How old were you? Seventeen, eighteen. Oh, so right as soon as you got to St. Petersburg?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't yet an identity, let's say. This is something that I didn't have in Kazakhstan. Obviously, I was thinking I'm the only one there.
6: Well, except go, for go, the except for the other boys. I think they also was thinking they're the only one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting.
6: In St. Petersburg, Yevgeny met Alexander, who became his partner.
1: He's very. Um bright person, I would say, you know, stands out and you easily identify as a person with whom you you want to be close. So I stayed uh, overnight at his place at a certain point and never apart since then.
6: Alexander wasn't in Ireland when I was there. We talked to him over Skype. Yevgeny and Alexander had a room in a communal apartment in St. Petersburg. They also had a cat named Musa.
0: She's like Garfield she has a lot.
6: So you and Alexander and Musa are living in St Petersburg
0: and Yeah, we were living on Vasilievsky Island in a huge communalka. So an Yeah, super terrible. Uh, it was actually that was part of why Musa became part of our life because uh, when we got that room the money was so small that we, we couldn't really find anything better. But the uh, realtor said that, well, we have ma- mice, which basically means that there is no rats.
6: So there was, there was a selling point that yeah. we have mice. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, if we have mice, we don't have rats. And we said, well, we, we, have- we, we, we will have a cat. <laughs> and it was a funny story.
6: You know, they have a good life in St. Petersburg. Day, but... Alexander got a PhD in sociology and started working at a nonprofit doing research on LGBT issues. This is in the mid 2000s when the gay movement in Russia is developing. It's not like Western Europe. But things are moving in the right direction. People are becoming more open and there are more spaces appearing. They're not just like community spaces and bars, but there's research, uh, there are discussion groups, there are film festivals. Things are moving along.
0: Well, we, we were living in a, real, in a real bubble. Like, you know, the NGO world, no, no one judge you for being a same sex couple.
6: But there's some trouble with Evgeny's papers. Back when he became a student, he applied for his Russian passport and got it easily. Ten years later, he is suddenly told that there was a problem. So Yevgeny went back to the embassy of Kazakhstan and they rescinded his citizenship as well. And suddenly he finds himself stateless. He doesn't have a passport and he doesn't have the ability to travel.
1: It's just the kind of disabling status on an everyday level like every policeman who stops you and looks at your papers knows that something is wrong with you if you want to check in in a hotel huge issue every time they look at the papers of a stateless person and they don't understand what the status is but they definitely know that it's officially bad
6: But Russia tells him he actually has a path to citizenship. He can stay in the country on a residency permit and apply for a passport in five years. He can't break any laws, and he's got to work. He gets a job at the same NGO as Alexander, the Center for Independent Social Research. Meanwhile, Russian politics is changing in a big way. In 2012, Vladimir Putin returns to the presidency after months of mass demonstrations. And Putin is immediately looking for a way to discredit the demonstrators. And LGBT people make the perfect scapegoat because we stand in for everything. We stand in for the West. We stand in for all the things that have changed in the last quarter century that make you uncomfortable. We also stand in for the promise of going back to an imaginary past without gay people. And, of course, no Russian thinks that they've actually ever met a gay person in person So that makes it really easy to create this image of the villainous queer people. First St. Petersburg and then the federal parliament pass a ban on what they call propaganda of homosexuality or propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations. You can't have any positive or neutral coverage of LGBT issues in any kind of media. You can't have public demonstrations But the biggest purpose of this law is to signal that there are second-class citizens in Russia outside the protection of the law. That means that hate crimes skyrocket. And Yevgeny actually decided to go back to school, and his subject of study is hate crimes against LGBT people.
0: I was analyzing the court decisions on the murders of gay men how people were killed in Russia. And usually like it's normal situation where two people are drinking and then one of them is declaring or proposing.
6: There's drinking, it seems like there's going to be sex and instead there's a murder.
0: Basically the homophobia is in a very private spaces and this was my main finding.
6: Evgeny's finding was in direct contradiction to the state's message which was essentially, you can do whatever you want in the privacy of your own homes, we just don't want you corrupting our children. In fact, violence was coming to people's homes. So while Putin is cracking down on LGBT people, the other attack is on NGOs. The foreign agents law requires NGOs that get foreign funding to submit to special reporting requirements. The whole thing is designed to paralyze their work and also to designate them as pariahs. And the center where Alexandria and Yevgeny work ends up on the list. So here's Yevgeny, a stateless person working for a foreign agent NGO and studying LGBT issues. And he goes and applies for his Russian passport.
0: I got a phone call. Evgeny Михайлович,
6: здравствуйте, здравствуйте.
0: Я звоню из миграционной Calling
6: from the migration service.
0: From the migration service. We are working with your application on citizenship. I said, what is wrong with it? No, 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 everything is okay. We just uh, would have to discuss it with you personally. Could you please come tomorrow at 10 a.m.?
6: The man on the phone gave him an address, his name, and a phone number. But when he arrived the next day, that migration office was closed. Evgeny called the number, and the man came down to meet him.
0: Young, my age more or less, somehow good-looking even, well-dressed, polite. Went with him to the first floor, and it was nothing, just a camera and an ordinary door. We entered. The thing that I saw and that really impacted me was this huge portrait of Andropov.
6: Andropov.
0: Andropov, yeah.
6: Andropov of was the head general, of the KGB yeah. and uh, a hero of Putin's and a former head of the the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah. And then he shows his knyuzhychka,
6: his ID. His ID.
0: His FSB ID. FSB ID.
6: The FSB is the federal security agency, the successor agency to the KGB. As soon as Evgeny saw the FSB ID, he knew he wasn't there to talk about a passport. The conversation with the agent lasted two hours. They talked about his master's thesis and about the murders of gay men and the work of the center.
0: What was terrifying is mostly he was naming some people that I won't name here, he was particularly interested in certain individuals, foreigners. He,
6: want, he wanted you to talk about them. Yeah. The man wanted Yevgeny to agree to be an informant.
0: Basically, his main attitude was very polite, but in a kind of very subtle, very tender way, he mentioned the law on espionage and the law of the traitor of motherland.
6: The prison sentences are essentially life in prison.
0: Yeah, basically, if, like my my main goal was to at least get out of there, but also not to damage other people.
6: At the end of the interview, the FSB agent asked if they could talk again. Evgenia said, sure basically anything to get out of there. He gets out of there, called Alexander, said everything is okay. And as soon as they got home, Evgeny wrote on a piece of paper, FSB. In the center of Galway, which is terribly touristy, terribly shoppingy. It's one of those places that don't feel like a place to live. It's a town where
0: people are coming to relax, spending their weekends and
6: holidays. Yevgeny managed to get himself on a plane to Ireland. Ireland is not a bad place to land. It's generally very friendly to persecuted people, especially in some ways to LGBT people. The prime minister is gay. The country held the first successful referendum on same-sex marriage. And there are definitely worse places to apply for asylum than Ireland. For example, in the United States, you might end up in detention and you don't qualify for any public assistance. But Ireland has one of the slowest asylum processes in the world. To somebody who is stuck in the process, it can feel just interminable. Yevgeny is living in what's called direct provision, which is this network of hotels and hostels and former convents, which are run by private companies, but um, funded by the state. He has a small room with a single bed. He gets three meals a day. He can't cook. He cannot have overnight guests, which means that Alexander can't come and spend the night with him. Alexander is not in Ireland with Evgeny.
1: I would go wherever he is, right? But I'm just a citizen of Russia. I have to get a visa to any country I I want to go.
6: The thing is, if they were a straight couple who had been together for 15 years, they would probably be married, and there probably wouldn't be a question of whether they're seeking asylum together. As it is, they had to consider whether Alexander had a case for asylum. And they also had to consider what it would mean for neither of them to work. Right now, Alexander has a temporary teaching position at the university in Helsinki. Every time he visits Evgeny in Ireland, he has to get an Irish visa, which is a fairly arduous process. And both men say that it's not clear when or how they'll be reunited.
1: It's been more than a year. And so we both are waiting and waiting and waiting and you want someone who's been with you 15 years right beside you and you cannot have it and we don't know what future is bringing us
0: i just can't visualize the future i can't see it
6: what what do you think is preventing you from imagining the future
0: Tiredness. I'm very tired. You know this feeling, to wake up tired. After sleeping 10 hours, you wake up and you're tired. This is the type of tiredness I have.
6: Yevgeny is taking a course at the university in Galway because he felt a depression coming on. He spends every day in the library. He leaves the hostel in the morning. He reads and he writes until the library closes at 10 o'clock at night. I met other queer migrants in Ireland. I met people from South Africa, from Zimbabwe. The thing is, in some ways, it's becoming harder for LGBT asylum seekers to find a place in the world. Many countries don't grant asylum on the basis of persecution because of sexual orientation or identity. The United States is one of those countries, but it's getting harder and harder to get into this country to seek asylum. And that possibility of getting refuge is actually narrowing just as the world is becoming more polarized in the treatment of LGBT people. So in some parts of the world, we're seeing incredible advances on LGBT rights, including really striking ones like India. In other countries, we're seeing a horrifying backlash. Kenya's highest court recently upheld a ban on gay sex. A new law in Brunei has made gay sex punishable by death by stoning. So even as global culture is pulling more people out of the closet, when the culture becomes more repressive, there's no closet to go back into. So people end up really exposed.
0: I found myself in a sense of nullified belonging. I don't belong to any country. I don't belong to any ethnic group, any, anything. Actually, my only diaspora is a Queer LGBT diasporas. That's where I feel they're part of this queer nation. This is my diaspora.
4: That's Masha Gessen in Galway, Ireland, with Evgeny Storn. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around.
3: Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world.
4: The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching
3: the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts.
4: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today on the program, we've been talking about the Stonewall Uprising. I'm here with Masha Gessen, and we've been talking about the gains and the changes in LGBTQ rights over the 50 years since Stonewall. Masha, trans issues and gender fluidity, these weren't things that people were talking about in any mass way years ago. How has the movement responded to that?
6: The movement has had some growing pains both in including transgender people, but also in sort of embracing some of the conversation around gender. Certainly when I was coming out, the right thing to do was to embrace your womanhood. No, 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 no. You don't want to be a man. You just want to be a woman who loves women. And it was lovely some 30 years later to be given permission to play with gender more actively. But I think some people are concerned, rightly so, that There is a conservative sort of undercurrent It's a kind of essential view of gender that doesn't actually change how we treat gender. You can just have the freedom of switching from one to the other. The best example I can give you a few years ago, there was a viral story uh, in in one of the glossy magazines about this wonderful family that once their five-year-old came out as transgender, repainted their room, which had been blue, and they painted it pink because this child wanted to be a girl. That's an example of what I'm talking about. It's a kind of essential view of gender that doesn't actually change how we treat gender. You can just have the freedom of switching from one to the other. Whereas within the LGBT community, it's a much different conversation, a much more interesting one about, uh, that problematizes gender as such.
4: Do you think we're headed for a point where we might not identify people by gender in, in an official way? That that might be a subject of real political and social debate?
6: That's a really hard question to answer because it actually depends on the strength of the backlash that we're facing. The backlash is new, right? It's, it, it basically began with the Trump administration. At this point, the movement, I think, hasn't quite figured out whether we're entirely on the defensive or whether actually, there's
4: actually a positive agenda. So in a way, Stonewall, the new Stonewall for this has not yet happened.
6: Well, Stonewall was started, as we used to say when I was younger, by drag queens, and now we say by transgender women of color. (laughs) Uh, Stonewall was very much a battle about gender. We heard Martin Duberman say earlier that one of the pretexts used for raiding Stonewall was that people weren't wearing gender-appropriate clothing. For many years, the gender aspect was sort of on the back burner, but it's very much a part of Stonewall.
4: Which means that Stonewall will reverberate with meaning for years to come and with many more political battles to come, I would think. I think that's right. Masha Gessen is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of The Future is History and other books. I'm David Remnick, and I want to thank you for listening to The New Yorker Radio Hour this week. Have a great week.
3: The New
2: Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Toonyards. This episode was produced with help from Michelle Moses, Kari Pitkin, and Jonna McCone. Special thanks to Alexis Quadrado for music he composed for this episode. Radio Rookies is supported in part by the Margaret Newbart Foundation and the Pinkerton Foundation. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall at 50. I'm Tobin Lowe, co-host of Nancy. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org stonewall50.